This is the time in our service where we like to welcome our KKVV listening audience who are listening via radio to the worship services of the Abundant Life Seventh-day Adventist Church. We have another great message for you today from our senior pastor, continuing his series on the Lord's Prayer. We'll have a scripture followed by a sacred selection from our wonderful children's choir. And then following that, we'll have another message from our senior pastor, Dr. Calvin Rock, concerning the Lord's Prayer. Now, many of you listen via radio and you say, man, that church where I get good preaching week after week, I have to find time to visit. Well, we have just the time for you. Tomorrow, we're beginning our evangelistic revival here at our church entitled, Lord, Make Me Over. It will begin on Sunday night at 7 p.m., ending at 8, and it will take place for the next two weeks every Sunday, Wednesday, Friday, and Saturday afternoon. You are invited. This is your chance to visit one of the best churches in Las Vegas, Nevada. God bless you, and enjoy the rest of the service as you hear from our senior pastor preaching on the Lord's Prayer. Good morning, church. Are you happy to be here this morning? I know I am. Let me hear you say, happy Sabbath in unison. Happy Sabbath. Wonderful. Let us turn in our Bible to the book of Revelation. Chapter 20, verses 1 to 4. It states, And I saw another angel come down from heaven, having the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold on the dragon, that old serpent, which is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years and cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years should be fulfilled. And after that, he must be loosed a little season. And I saw thrones, and they sat upon them, and judgment was given unto them. And I saw the souls of them that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and for the word of God, and which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark upon their foreheads or in their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading of his word.
Thank you, Sister Brown. And another hearty amen for our children. Amen. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we rejoice now as we fellowship and commune and are brought to the table of good things in the Holy Word. And as we open the pages of the Bible to study, may your Holy Spirit impress and guide, inform, and empower. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I don't know about you, but I want to say that this has been a very rich experience for me. And by that I mean the experience of study of the Lord's Prayer. We say it all the time and we kind of glibly pass by it, but to be able to get down into and under the substantive meanings of these words and expressions has been a blessing for me. I confess to being a student and to being happy to share with you again from the book of Matthew chapter 6 in a study of the model prayer. We have learned so far that these verses in Matthew chapter 6 beginning at verse 9 and going through verse 13 
these verses that comprise the model prayer, the verses that begin after this manner, therefore pray ye, and that conclude with thine be the power and the glory forever and so forth. We've discovered that these verses are rich and full and instructive and they need to be savored. We discovered that there is an introduction, the beginning, our Father, a conclusion, thine be the honor and the glory, and in between the introduction and the conclusion, there are six petitions. There are six requests that we make of the Father. And those six petitions begin with Thy kingdom come, number one in verse 10. They move along to thy will be done, the second of the petitions. The third in verse 11, give us this day. The fourth in verse 12, forgive us our debts as we what? Right? And then the fifth, and we've also reviewed this one, lead us not into... And now the sixth, the sixth of the petitions, and this one also in verse 13, as is lead us not into temptation, number five. This one, number six of the petitions, this one, but... Deliver us from what? Deliver us from evil. Now, the evil that Jesus is talking about here comes in many shapes and forms. There is external evil, and that is evil outside of us. Evil around us evil, not of our doing, but with which we have to deal anyway. And that external evil itself has various shapes, one of which is recorded in the book of Galatians. And if you turn with me there to Galatians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, where we read grace, Galatians 1, 3, be to you and peace from God the Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. I'm reading Galatians 1, 4. Jesus, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present, what kind of world? Evil world, according to the will of God and our Father. The first external evil, the first manifestation of external evil is the evil of the world. In fact, in writing to the church at Ephesus, Paul put it this way. He said, redeem the time for the days are what? Evil. And we live in an evil age, an evil society. The most immediate of the external evils with which we have to deal is the very world, the very environment in which we live. It is an age of low standards and lewd images and lawless living. It is an age of the loss of shame. And that's one of the most pronounced differences in this age of evil. People aren't ashamed anymore. There's no more shame. There was a time when human beings, citizens in our world, had shame about themselves. They were ashamed to look a certain way or to sound a certain way but there's no shame anymore. There's no shame anymore. The fact of the matter is that you, you can see anything.
people will do most anything and say most anything and look most any kind of way. Men are not ashamed and women are not ashamed. The loss of modesty is one of the evils of our times. We live in an age of angry attitudes, angry people on edge. They're living on the razor edge of explosion about the least little thing. An age of vile language and the desecration of the family. An age, in fact, so evil that the sociologists tell us that the lines of distinction between the genders is being erased and a line that once made the family a sacred institution is being inundated with all kinds of shameless attitudes and living and the family as we once knew it with a husband and a wife and children or a single parent rearing his or her children is about to go out of style. An age when life is lightly regarded, an age so evil that you might lose your life over a pair of sneakers or your car that somebody wants, an age when people are being worshipped, an age when personalities are being exalted and human beings are being prized when people know the names of football and basketball players who don't know the name of Jesus. An age when, uh, as 1 Timothy 3.10 reminds us, the love of money is indeed the root of all evil. And that doesn't mean that loving money is what begins everything. It means that the attitude, the attitude which makes persons love money is the same attitude that is the root of all the evil in society. And so we have this moral cesspool, this moral cesspool, this environment of external evil, and it is all of this evil around us about which we pray when we ask God to deliver us from evil. A second kind of external evil that is involved in our prayer is evil individuals. You see, the evil environment is because of evil people. And when we pray, deliver us from evil, we are in effect not only asking God to help us to be delivered in this evil environment. What we are saying is, Lord, deliver me from evil individuals. And there are two kinds of evil people. The evil people you don't know and the evil people you do know. The evil people you don't know are those who rob and break and steal. I hope you don't know any of them. Who rob and break and steal and overcharge you at the store. The evil people you don't really know are the politicians who make deals and sell their communities down the stream for a few more votes and a little more money. And you've read about it in the local papers. The evil people you don't know are the mass murderers and the kidnappers, the white collar criminals who cook the books and the blue-collar criminals who set the fires and kidnap the children. And the evil people you do know are your jealous neighbors, are your mean-spirited family members. You got any family members like that? Mean! And don't let grandmama, speaking of grandparents' day, don't let grandmama and great-grandmama get ready to die 
or die, you'll find out how mean some people in the family can be. The mean people are the evil speaking church members. The evil people you know are evil even in the church who surmise and gossip and spread tales. The evil people you do know are the treacherous people that work next to you on your job who try to hold you back from promotion or advancement. And 2 Timothy 3.13 says, evil people will wax worse and worse as we get near the end of time. And so when we pray, deliver us from evil, we're praying for deliverance from evil environment and evil people. But there's a third external evil, and that is evil events. When we pray, deliver us from evil, we're praying that God will deliver us from evil happenings. You remember Job, don't you? And in Job chapter 2, verse 11, we have a good example of what we're talking about. For Job 2:11 reads, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, and you know the evil that came upon Job, right? The loss of his family, the loss of his barns, the loss of his horses, the loss of his goods. When his friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came everyone from his own place. And the last part of the verse said, and made appointment together to come and mourn with him to comfort him. When we pray, deliver us from evil, we're praying, Lord, help me in this evil environment. Lord, keep me out of the clutches of these evil people. And Lord, spare me from evil events and evil circumstances. The losses that we suffer, the loss of the job, the loss of property by fire and flood, the loss of health. Today we're here smiling and saying happy Sabbath and shaking hands. Tomorrow it could be heart attack or stroke. Lord, deliver me from evil. Today we are taking nourishment and we're mobile. Tomorrow it could be an accident that would cripple us, a fall, or, or the exploding cancer cells in our body that might bring us down. And so we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. That evil too, Lord. And that includes the evils of old age. Somebody said, it's no sin to get old, it's just highly inconvenient. <laughs> and old age brings with, it, brings with it some evils. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1, remember now thy creator, Solomon wrote, in the days of thy youth, while the evil, what kind of days? evil days come not. Now what was Solomon talking about when he said, remember the creator when you're young and strong before the evil days come. He was talking about those days when the body breaks down. When the bones get brittle. When you start to shrink from six foot three and you used to look people dead in the eye and now folk that you used to look dead in the eye, you got to look up at them. When the vertebrae begins to compress and when the tendons get tight and strong men used to stride around and preen in their power, begin to take little short steps and start teetering and tottering. When the evil days come and you can't see like you used to see and you can't eat what you used to eat, and you can't hear like you used to hear. When the evil days come and you get sick and you don't recover like you used to bounce back. When we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil. We are praying, deliver us 
from all of these evils that come, all of these losses that are ours. And, O oh Lord, I beg you in your mercy, make a way for me. And when I come to my old age and when I'm alone, Lord, help me to fall in the hands of good children. Once a man and twice a child. And Lord, when I get there, deliver me from evil. Preserve me and help me somehow. Even though I'm fortunate enough to live that long, Lord, deliver me from the inconveniences and the abuses and the evil that society heaps upon those who are in this semi-helpless condition. So when we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil, we're praying about all these external conditions that we can't help, that we don't manufacture but come upon us. But that's not all. When we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil, we're also praying about internal evil. Now, what do I mean by internal evil? Well, again, the book of Job tells us, among other places, that we all have internal evil. Did you know that you were born with internal evil? Listen to Job 5, verse 7. Yet, Job 5, 7, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. And Jeremiah 17, 9. Jeremiah 17, 9 also speaks about this. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I'm talking about internal evil. And the fact that when we pray, deliver us from evil, we're not just talking about the environment and the people and accidents and bad things that may happen to us, but we're talking about the evil in us. Doesn't Psalm 51, 5 remind us that we are born in sin and shapen in what? Iniquity. We are born, Job says, to trouble like the sparks fly upward. We all come into this world afflicted with internal evil. And when we pray, Lord, deliver us from evil, among other things, we are praying that the Lord will deliver us from the evil with which we are born. The evil that mama and daddy gave to us that they got from their mama and daddy right on back to mama, daddy, Adam. In the book of Romans, chapter 7, verse 18, there's another scripture I want you to notice, and I'm glad you brought your Bible with you today because we are studying the Word of God together. The book of Romans, chapter 7, and let me begin with verse 16, where Paul says, If then I do that which I would not, Romans 7, 16, I consent unto the law that it is good. If then, now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Verse 18, and here it is. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Notice what he says. In me dwelleth no good thing. Now look at verse 23. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he goes on, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Now, what I want you to notice here is that this is the converted Apostle Paul. Before Adam and Eve sinned, the human being did not have any wicked thoughts or desires or, or urges. God made Adam and Eve perfect and there was nothing wicked in them. They didn't have any internal push or drive to do what was wrong. 
And as I've explained many times, they yielded to exterior stimuli. There was something outside that said, Adam and Eve, you do this. There was nothing inside that said, Adam and Eve, you do this. But once Adam and Eve sinned, their condition changed, and they who were perfect and pure with no internal suggestions became afflicted with evil desires. And their problem and our problem is that since sin, we're all afflicted with these internal urges to do what's wrong. And it's there before we're converted and even after we're converted, we still have these urges. That was Paul, the converted evangelist who was preaching and baptizing, who is confessing in Romans 7, I don't always do the things I want to do and things I don't want to do, I sometimes do. And I'm going through this daily struggle. There's something inside me that keeps making me want to do what's wrong. And I have to wrestle and struggle every day with this internal evil. And when we are converted, what happens is we read and study and pray and God keeps these animals inside us down. That's all conversion is. Conversion is the word of God keeping the demons down, keeping the dogs at bay. That's all conversion is. Conversion is the love of God that keeps the, the lions in chains and they don't, they don't take over anymore, but they're still there. And when we forget to study and pray, they rise up and take over. That's when we start blessing people out. That's when we start spending our tithe. That's when we don't have enough faith not to work on the Sabbath anymore. Because these urges take over. And so when we pray, deliver us from evil. We're not praying just about the carjacker out there on the corner of Maryland Parkway and Tropicana or wherever. We're praying about the demons in our souls. And we're saying, Lord, deliver me. Give me victory over all these addictions, all, all of these bad habits. Lord, deliver me from the evil that is inside. These bad habits, these evil imaginations, not only the evil things we do out that people see, the visual things that people can observe, but Lord, deliver me from all these evil thoughts I have that nobody knows about. Just you and I know, Lord, but deliver me. Help me even in my dreams to be nearer my God to thee. Deliver me from all the promptings and the botherings and the buggings of these evil urges with which I am born and help me, oh God, give me the victory. Deliver me from evil. And the good news, brothers and sisters, is that there is someone who is able and who can and will deliver us from both the external and the internal evils with which we have to deal. Who is he? He is the great physician. He is the balm in Gilead. He is the lawyer who has never lost a case. He is the on-time God he is Elohim, the God who connects, and Jehovah, the God who corrects, and El Shaddai, the God who protects, and El Elyon, the God who directs, and Adonai, the God who expects, and El Olam, the God who projects, and El Sabaoth, the God who accepts. He is Jesus, our great high priest and prince and deliverer. He can and will deliver us. He can. And that's why Peter wrote in 2 Peter 2, 9, the Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly. And that's why David wrote, the Lord is my rock and my deliverer, Psalm 18, 2. The Lord is my help 
and my deliverer, Psalm 40:17. The Lord is my fortress and shield and high tower and my deliverer, Psalm 144, 2. And why Solomon said, Proverbs 11, 8, the righteous is delivered out of his troubles. God is able to deliver us. It's not an idle prayer when we pray, oh God, deliver us from evil. It's not idle chatter. God is able and he will answer. Now, how does he do it? Well, we really don't know all those answers because his ways are past finding out. We don't know. We don't know. But this much we do understand. And that is Psalm 34, 7 says, The angels of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivers them. We know that God has angels who are keeping us away from evil. Let me read you what I found in Desire of Ages, one of Ellen White's best books, I think. Page 348. He delivers men from physical perils they do not see. He commissions heavenly angels to save them from calamity, to guard them from the pestilence that walketh in darkness. Isn't that wonderful? I will give my angels charge over thee, he says in Psalm 91, to keep thee in the way. The sun shall not smite thee by day, nor the moon by night. God has promised and he sends his angels. And page 240 says, from what dangers seen and unseen we have preser been preserved through the interposition of angels, we shall never know until the light of eternity in the light of eternity, we see the providences of God. We don't know how many car wrecks we've been spared. On the way to church this morning, my dear permanent roommate <laughs> had a little emergency. And she said, Calvin, we gotta go back. And we turned around and went back to straighten out the emergency and when we went back to the corner of where we exit from Rhodes Ranch, there was a big bad accident. You know what she said? You see there, if we'd been on time coming out of here, we would have been right here with this accident. And I said, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't, didn't comment. That's her theological interpretation, that's all right. And you know what, she may be right. But this much I know, God has delivered us from troubles we never know about. We would have been shot and stabbed and killed and robbed and been in all kinds of horrific things except that the angels of God had protected us. That's how he delivers us from evil. He watches over us and keeps us. And what the good prophet is saying, we'll never know these things until in the kingdom, like we read about in our scripture, when we go over the books, Revelation 24, when we go over the books, then we'll see, wow, look what God did. What? Is that what would have happened to me? Oh no, look at that. And we'll see hundreds and thousands of times when God has delivered us. Another thing. People ask, well, if God's angels are delivering us, why is it that some good people do suffer and die? Now, how, how, how do you explain this, Brother Pastor? You say that God's angels are delivering us from evil in answer to this prayer, and that's all well and good. But I know one preacher. I know a preacher. I, I know a preacher, knew a preacher, who never smoked, never ate meat, all that, lived all his circumspect life, and he died with lung cancer. Explain that, if you please. I was visiting in Zimbabwe at our college at Salusi, and they showed me the graves of missionaries who had left their home in America and gone over to Africa to serve, and there was some tribal warfare, and these people came out of the bush and walked into the house and killed the whole family of missionaries. Seventh-day Adventist, Sabbath-keeping, tithe-paying, vegetarian missionaries. I stood on their graves. 
I was visiting in Papua New Guinea several years ago, and they showed me the spot where a young missionary brother, young man had finished one of our colleges and gone to Papua New Guinea, and he came out of his house one night to fix something in the back of his home, and when he walked out in his backyard, this sacrificial, God-loving young man with a wife and children was standing there trying to fix his electrical system, and somebody shot him, killed him right then and there. Explain that. How can we pray, deliver us from evil? God says he sends his angels to watch over us, and still bad things happen to good people. How do we explain it? Well, the truth is, we can't. Not really. Now, we have some, 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 some potential explanations of, of our human thought. We can say, well, it was time for the individual to go. I've heard that. And if they'd lived any longer, they would have fallen out of faith and been lost. So God took them while they were ready. Well, my prayer is, Lord, work with me a little longer. Help me to get ready. Then some other people say, and this is a little more like it maybe, and, and, and I, shouldn't, I shouldn't be too cavalier about that. I believe probably there are some times, and I think Ellen White backs it up, when people are ready and God lays them to rest. But it doesn't have to be in such violent form. Like that lovely young lady I had to bury in Philadelphia, sweet single girl, finished college, got her master's, was teaching and doing fine. She wasn't a bad child. She was a good girl backing out of her driveway one winter morning and this truck hit her as her car slipped in the ice and she was so mangled they couldn't even open the casket. Don't tell me that she was ready so God had to take her. I don't believe that. And if he had to take her, he didn't have to take her like that. So how do we answer it? Some say, well, in the death of some people, God is trying to wake up the rest of us. All right, maybe so. Others explain, and I think it's more probably final of, a, of an answer, is that we all live in this world of sin. We are born in an evil environment with evil people. And the fact is that because we are children of God, he does not always keep us from the calamities. And we who are Christians also suffer at times for reasons when and how we'll only have to wait to get the final answer when he comes. But this much I know. I would rather live trusting in God's protection, knowing that whatever happens to me, he sees it and he understands it. Then to, and be ready, if he's going to take me with some evil, be ready to say I'm in his hands, and like Job, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Though I can't understand it, yet will I trust him. I'd rather do that in this present evil world than to live on my own hooks and try to figure it out for myself and thereby trade eternity for my present happiness or enjoyment. So far, We've talked about how God relates to evil, but we have a part two, or also. And what part do we have? Number one, Zechariah 1, 4, read it when you go home. Isaiah 59, 7 says, we should depart from evil. That means stop. That means stop doing evil. That evil that whelms up within us, this internal evil that makes us get into these bad habits, stop it. Break it off that evil, whatever it is, get rid of it. And how do you do that? You study the word of God and you get strong and stronger and stronger and God gives us strength to overcome. Number two, don't envy the evil person. Proverbs 24, 19 says, envy not the evil man. You know, sometimes we Christians, when we're suffering along and we're playing, we're, we're returning our tithe and we're trying to do what's right and then we see somebody out there gambling 
and smoking and drinking and living it up, sometimes we're tempted to say, well, you know, what's the payoff? I'm trying to do right, and I, <laughs> I can't buy a house like that. This brother's hitting the lottery and gambling, and you don't look at him. God says, envy not the evil man. Don't envy evil. Better to suffer poverty now and glory and riches later than to have the glory and riches now and miss out on heaven. Then there's a third thing that we ought to remember as we relate to this evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22 says, avoid the appearance of evil. That means as a child of God, I ought not even be looking like I'm in evil. I ought to stay as far away from evil and evil looking as I can. And we must remember as we associate as members of the church and as Christian brothers and sisters, that it is our, responsible, our responsibility not to look like we're doing evil. That means there are certain places you can't go. You can't sit down in this particular place and pray and say, I'm here and I'm okay with God when everybody looks at you and says, well, what in the world are you doing there? We are to avoid the appearance of evil because it misleads others. Number four, we are to run from evil circumstances. And I'm going to read you a scripture in Proverbs 4. And deacons and ushers, come on down because I have something in this box and I want everybody, every family here to get a copy of this. And I'm going to find this text and you start finding it with me while they are bringing these around. Save a little time. Proverbs 4, 14, and 15. And this is the final statement of our relationship. God's going to do his part. Now, I don't have enough of these for every single person here, but I've got enough for every family. And I want every family to have one of these little guides. And let's bring them up on the rostrum here to see that everybody up here gets one. Because this, and I want you to take it home, saints, and read it. I don't have time to go through it now. I've only got about seven or eight more minutes. But I want you to take this little book and read it. And it's based upon what God says in Proverbs 4, one to every family now. Enter not into the path of the wicked and go not in the way of evil men. Avoid it, pass not by it, turn from it and pass away. Now, what does that mean? That means that we should be certain to remove ourselves from all evil conditions, every evil condition we can. Am I being understood in the back? Can you hear me clearly? All right. I want you to, as soon as you get your little book, I want you to open it up. This is a pamphlet by Ellen White. The title is Country Living. Now, don't get scared. Don't, don't get frightened. I'm not trying to run everybody to the country. But the book has principles that everybody ought to understand. And we have one for every family, I hope. If not, we'll share ours from the rostrum. Anybody, any family miss one of these, raise your hand. All right, we've got a few in the back. So uh, thank you, elders. I hate to take yours away from you, but let me feed the sheep and then I'll get yours back to you. All right, here, this is for, this is for you. Raise your hand way in the back. If you didn't get one, I apologize, but one for every family. We have several. Uh, brother Forbes, take a few on this side in the back. Any, any situation where more than one was to a family, please raise it up and share because we want to get it all to go around. Let me read page one. Few realize the importance of shunning as far as possible all association unfriendly to religious life. In choosing their surroundings, few make their spiritual prosperity the first consideration. Now listen to this. This is paragraph number two on page five. Thank you. We have a few coming back. None for the children and husbands and wives you must share alike. Please give the deacons and let them satisfy the hands that are being raised. Paragraph two. Parents, listen to this, flock 
with their children to the cities because they fancy it easier to obtain a livelihood there than in the country. Listen to this. The children have nothing to do when not in school, obtain a street education from evil associates. They acquire habits of vice and dissipation. The parents see all this, but it will require a sacrifice to correct their error and they stay where they are until Satan gains full control of their children. Better sacrifice any and every worldly consideration than to imperil the precious souls committed to your care. They will be assailed by temptations and taught to meet them, but it is your duty to cut off every influence, to break every habit, to sunder every tie that keeps you from the most free, open, hearty committal of yourselves and your family to God. Paragraph three or four. Instead of the crowded city, seek some retired situation where your children will be as far as possible shielded from temptation and there train and educate them for usefulness. And there's so much more. Please read this little book. Please read it. Page six, the second paragraph. The angels of mercy hurried Lot and his wife and daughters by taking hold of their hands. That was Lot's problem. Lot and his family were living in the midst of the cesspool called Las Vegas. Pardon me, Sodom and Gomorrah. <laughs> and God said, get out of there. He said, Lot, you can't rear your children in Sodom. It's too wicked. Homosexuality. It's too wicked wife swapping. It's too wicked liquor, gambling, drugs, murders, gangs, crime. It's too wicked. Get out of there, Lot. Don't try to rear your children there. And Lot delayed and fulminated around until finally it was time for the fire to fall and the angel came and grabbed him and he took his wife and he ran out of town and she was so tied up with her TV in the good time she was leaving. <laughs> she turned around and looked back. The Bible says only two of his children survived and Ellen White says in describing it that later on even these two were lost. Lot didn't save anybody but himself. Now listen, please don't everybody run to Ely <laughs> or wherever tomorrow morning. That's not the point here. But the point is that you and I ought to realize the danger of trying to rear our children in this evil environment. And if you can go somewhere, I don't know where, I've never been to Ely. But if you can go, you'd be better off rearing your children there. Tell you that. I'd hate to lose you here. But if, let me tell you the truth. You'd be better off rearing your children in an environment outside the cesspool environment that surrounds us. And as you read the book, and we'll talk about it some more as time goes by, but please read it. And how many did not get a copy? Let me see how many more I need. Oh, that's too bad. I'll, I'll see that we get some for next week. I'll have some more. But the point is, read the book. The point is we must be prepared. Now, even if you don't go today or tomorrow to the country, when they start passing the Sunday blue laws and persecuting those who are worshiping on the Sabbath, you don't have to go. There's going to come a time when we won't be able to worship like we're doing now. So look, wear this environment with a loose garment. Don't get stuck here. Don't get, don't, 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 don't get too rooted in this environment. This is not our final home and it is not the best environment to educate your children. And if you've got to educate them here because you're working here, by all means, send them to church school, which isn't perfect, but it's better. So when we pray, deliver us from evil, it's not just kneeling down and saying, oh Lord, here I am, your child. 
and, and you do it all, Lord, and you see I'm in this fix, and I didn't ask to be born, but here I am, so Lord, now you just deliver me. You and I have some things to do as well. That's the point I'm trying to make. And finally, our responsibility expressed in 1 Peter 3, 9 is render not evil for evil. Not only must we depart from evil, not only must we avoid the appearance of evil, we must also remove ourselves from evil, even though it sometimes takes drastic and radical action, even a change of address. And it's a radical action by parents while you're in this evil environment. If you can't get out right now, you should be controlling your television, controlling the computer, controlling the situation as much as you can. You may need to, 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 to rid yourself of HBO and some other things. It's evil. Deliver us from evil doesn't mean God's going to do it all. It means you and I have got to be alert and aggressive in trying to protect ourselves. And if we can't be delivered out of here, ask God to deliver us in here. But that takes something on your and my part as well. But in addition to all that, God says, don't render evil for evil. Vengeance is mine, Romans 12, 19. And that's exactly how it was with Jesus when he was up on Calvary. He was arrested. My Lord was arrested and tried and crucified. And he was judged in a manner that was worse than anything the world had ever known. They took an innocent man and did him evil. They did him evil. They first of all said that he was guilty of blasphemy, which meant he was talking against God, saying, destroy this temple, three days I'll build it up. And when that didn't impress Pilate and the others, they accused him of sedition, which was crime against the government. First, it was crime against God, and when that didn't work, and they had those false witnesses and they failed. Then they accused him of crime against the government. And old Pilate took that one. He says, what? Crime against the government? Against Caesar? They said, yes, he doesn't love Caesar. He's a terrorist. That's what he is. And they lied on him. And Pilate brought out Barabbas. It was Labor Day or some big holiday like that. And at those holidays, they would bring out one of the prisoners that was a Jew and they would give him his freedom. So they brought out Jesus and Barabbas and stood them side by side. And Pilate said, which one will you have, Jesus or Barabbas? And those evil people who had eaten up all the food that he had given them whose children he had healed, those evil people sat there and said, give us Barabbas. And Pilate said, why? What evil hath he done? What evil hath he done? And when they had cried out, crucify him, they took him to the cross and there they spread eagle my Lord upon the tree and hurled their epithets, their charges in his face. And he hung his head and died because of the worst portrayal of evil in the history of the universe. But when he died, with all this evil heaped upon, a, upon him, our evils, our sins, and their evil accusations, the results were glorious. Number one, Satan was proven to be the liar that he is. People could see how evil Satan really is, Lucifer really is, to kill the innocent son of God. Number two, Adam and Eve's descendants were delivered from eternal loss 
because when he died, he gave us his robe of righteousness to cover our evil. Have mercy. When he died, he not only forgave my sins, but he gave me his robe to cover my evil, all these evil urges. So when God looks down at his struggling child, he doesn't see me, he sees Jesus' righteousness covering me. And that's how I'm saved. Not because I keep the commandments, but because Jesus' robe is covering me. And when he died, he changed death from a permanent parking lot to a temporary holding ground. He reversed death from a period that ends all life to a comma that's separating the two great eternities. When he died, he altered the final evil, which is everlasting death, from an everlasting goodbye to a temporary good night. I'll see you in the morning. So that now the Christian who comes down to die can say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Where was God when my son died? In the car wreck? He was the same place that he was when his son died on Calvary. And by his death, he provides the solution and the example whereby we are made whole and one day, if we are faithful, he is turning back the clock and he's coming again. And Ellen White says it will be at midnight when the saints are in all their troubles and trials and Jesus comes again. She said it is at midnight that he delivers his people. He will come at the darkest hour in the clouds of glory and the saints will go marching in. The saints of God will be taken to glory and I want to be on the inside looking out. How about you? If you do, then I want you to imagine that day and just sing as we leave that song that I like you to sing once in a while. Oh, when the saints go marching in and let that be our determination that we love him for what he's done, for his deliverance, for keeping us from evil, keeping us in evil if necessary, and by his grace looking forward to his final act of return and deliverance. Oh, when the saints go marching in, oh, when the saints go marching in, Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints go when they march around the throne. The throne. Lord, I want to be in that number. When the saints. Oh, when they cry. Oh, when they cry. I've been redeemed. Oh, when they cry, I've been redeemed. Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints. Oh, when the saints go marching in, when the saints Go marching in. Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints, when they keep the Sabbath day. Oh, when they keep the Sabbath day. When they keep the Sabbath day. Lord, I want to be in that number when the saints go on. Our Father in heaven, as we leave this place today, we do so with the strains of your promises ringing in our hearts and minds. And when we pray, deliver us from evil. We thank you, Lord, 
for your promises, for your pledge. We thank you that there's coming a time of eternal and final deliverance when we shall be extricated from this world, delivered from gravity and ascend on high to meet you in the air. We will be delivered from our graves, delivered from our imprisonment of the tomb where our bodies must be laid if times continue and we will have the joy of renewed association with our departed loved ones, with the saints of all the ages. And while your heads are bowed and your eyes are closed, that man or woman who's here today, and thank God for the five who've already said, before we even started the message, five already said they're looking for the church home. God bless you. But who else other than these wants to stand right now while the church is praying? These are good people here. We're not perfect, but this is a good church and a lot of good sacrificial people. And I want them to pray. And as they pray, who else who is not a member of the church, but who wants to become a part of God's remnant Sabbath keeping people? Who else is here? And you just want to raise your hand and say, yes, count me in. I want to be among the saints when they go marching in. I want to be delivered from evil and be inside the city and not on the outside looking in. Just raise your hand while we finish our prayer. We'll take note of who you are. Anybody else? Did we miss anybody? Deliver us from evil. Lord, help us to hate evil. One of the problems is getting so used to evil, you don't even see it anymore. You start liking it. But Jesus wants you to understand that he has something better, a righteous, holy kingdom where there'll be no evil and where iniquity shall not rise a second time. Who else wants to join us as we march toward that happy day? Father, you've seen our hands, our hearts, you know our determination. Now may your word be as seed in good soil. We ask in Jesus' name that all the people say, Amen. Amen.